Good morning. Welcome to Discovery's Digital Gathering. We are glad you're here. We are excited for what God has in store this morning. We want to invite you to download our app, which will help you stay current with our community and get further connected by filling out our new visitor card. Let's prepare our hearts for worship and for the adventure of discovering the good news of Jesus together. All right, meet me in Acts chapter 4 as we continue our conversation that we are calling ekklesia. Remember, ekklesia is this Greek word that gets translated in our English Bibles as church. It literally means gathering. And this time that we are spending immersing ourselves in the story of Acts, the story of the first ekklesia, the early church, as we sometimes call it, is all about having our imaginations, our hearts, our minds formed in these stories so that we have a sense of both what God intended originally for the church, but also what it could look like here, right, in Davis, California in 2021 and beyond. Wonderful stories that form us in this concept dream of the church. Acts chapter 4, we're going to be looking at verses 32 through 37 here at the end of chapter 4, and then another story right at the beginning of chapter 5, two very different stories. So before we get into it, let's pray, and then we'll see what God's Word has to say to us today. Heavenly Father, we uh, invite you to speak to us now. We, uh, we approach this moment open-handedly. We hand over to you all of our burdens, worries, fears, anxieties, concerns, even our joys, the things that we're celebrating, God. We ask you to hold them for us so that we can be fully present in this moment, in tune with your Spirit, speaking to us that we may be challenged, encouraged, comforted, disturbed in whatever ways we need to today, God. Would you speak to us and would we be obedient in following your voice? We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus. And everybody said, Amen. All right, how many of you are familiar with the Sesame Street bit, one of these things? This is where they'd have a bunch of different objects, right? Three balls and one cube, two apples and one orange, whatever it would be. And then they'd have kids point out which one was different from the others. And they'd sing this song, one of these things is not like the others, one of these things just doesn't belong. This is a very simple uh, version of a fancy word, and that word is juxtaposition, right? Juxtaposition, putting two different things next to each other uh, in order to see the contrast between those things to great effect. You have this thing, and you have this thing, and they are not exactly alike. And it's in that contrast that all sorts of interesting things show up. This is a storytelling technique. Juxtaposition is a storytelling technique that the writers of Scripture use often, especially the writers of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now, Luke is one of those writers of the Jesus story. He is also the one who writes the book of Acts, the conversation that we're in as we look at the, the stories of the early church. So Luke has used this technique to great effect in his telling of the Jesus story, and now he's using it again 
as he tells the story of the ecclesia, the church. So we come to one of the biggest examples, one of the most, uh, I mean, dramatic, stark examples of juxtaposition here as we, again, wrap up chapter 4 and begin chapter 5. Now, before we get too deep into this, I want to just remind us of some things that have come before, remind us of how we got to this point in the story. So going back to the beginning, Acts chapter 1, Jesus invites uh, his disciples, he invites us into this adventure, right, of, of taking the good news about him to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, this great adventure with Jesus. Acts 2, remember in Acts 1, he said, hey, I'm going to send my spirit to be, to be with you and to give you power as your witnesses in all these places. Acts 2 is the moment where that happens. The Holy Spirit comes and, and it unleashes the resurrection power of Jesus into this, at, at what is at that time anyway, a small group of his followers, right? About 120 people following Jesus at that time. And they are just uh, sort of literally and metaphorically on fire after the Spirit comes. They begin speaking different languages, connecting with people. Peter stands up and preaches. 3,000 people join this adventure called the Ecclesia at that moment. Then there's this little pause in the story and Luke kind of gives us a picture of what that was like, what that community was like. Now that there's all these people, 3,000 of them, figuring out what it means to follow Jesus, be this thing called the church together. We, we get a picture of that at the end of chapter 2, of them meeting together, eating together, learning together, praying together, serving together, right? The great togetherness of the church. Then in chapter 3, we pick the, the narrative up again. We see Peter and John, two critical disciples in the Gospels, now still two leaders of the church. Peter and John heal a man who could not walk. This is where we were last week. Or two weeks ago, sorry. Peter and John heal a man who could not walk. Peter gives this amazing sermon, a second amazing sermon. And he tells people this happened, not because we're awesome or, or skilled or have some kind of superpowers. This happened because of Jesus. We did this in his name. And this gets him and John thrown into prison. This is where we were last week, right? They're thrown in prison. They have a trial and they're told, you need to stop talking about Jesus. You're free to go, but just don't speak in Jesus's name anymore. And they say, well, we just can't do that. Like we can't help but tell this story. And in the midst of all that craziness, 2,000 more people joined the church and then we ended right with them praying, right? Peter and John come back, explain what happened. They pray for boldness and for God to move, and it happens. The earth shakes. They're filled with the Spirit. Again, they begin to do all kinds of crazy stuff in the name of Jesus. Good crazy stuff, right? And they see this answer to their prayer. Now, this brings us to today's passage, today's text, the two stories we're going to look at here, beginning at the end of chapter 4. So, if you have your Bibles, you can read along with me. Acts 4, verse 32, all the believers were one in heart and mind. It's going to sound a little bit familiar, right? One in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had with great power. The apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. What a beautiful phrase that is. God's grace so powerfully at work in them, there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, 
Those who own land or houses would sell them, bring the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet. Remember that phrase? And then it was distributed to anyone who had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, Barnabas sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Now, pause there for a minute, right? Because that is just such an amazing picture, again, of how the church was operating, right? One, in heart and mind, selling stuff, helping meet needs in these really practical ways. But then look at, 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 at chapter 5. We flipped a page to the next chapter, and all of a sudden, we have these two liars who fall down dead. All right? One of these things is not like the other. Are you with me? So, what is going on here? Let's get into the juxtaposition of these two stories and just do some good old-fashioned comparing and contrasting. You may have done this in, in you know, high school literature class or, or even elementary school. Compare and contrast these two stories because Luke is very intentional and very skilled in what he's doing here. There's a reason he's put these two scenes right next to each other. So first thing, let's, let's just observe this. First thing is, again, the end of chapter 4 is very similar to the end of chapter 2. And this is another of Luke's storytelling techniques. The important things in the book of Acts get repeated all the time. Get, get ready for many examples of this as we, as we make our way through this book. A lot of things that come up once that are important, he'll bring up again or he'll show how it happened again in some other place. So we saw community and togetherness in chapter 2. We get a, a nearly interchangeable picture here in chapter 4. One heart, one mind, sharing everything, no one in need, radical generosity. One of the big differences, though, between chapter 4 and chapter 2 is that here we get this personal named example of someone who did this, right? Who, who, who lived this out, embodied this. They sold stuff to meet needs. This guy named Joseph, nicknamed Barnabas. So awesome, you got the nickname Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. If you're going to be a son of anything, right? Son of encouragement, good thing to be. So for the second time, we get a picture of the incredible community, the incredible togetherness, the incredible generosity of the ecclesia. And then it, Luke holds this up in contrast with chapter 5. Now we do get another named example, Ananias and his wife Sapphira. They sell some property, which as we've just seen is totally normal. This is happening from time to time, as Luke says in chapter 4. But they withhold some of the proceeds. And then they present the rest at the apostles' feet, right? So they're doing the same thing that Barnabas did, that so many other members of the early church did. But Peter somehow senses this one is off. Something fishy going on here. He calls it out. He calls it lying to the Spirit. And then Ananias drops dead. And then Sapphira walks in, and she doesn't actually know what has happened at this point. This is a couple hours later. And she repeats the story. This is what we made from the sale. <clears throat> and then she drops dead. And it then says, a great fear fills the church, as it would when people start dropping dead as they bring money 
and lay it at the apostles' feet. So, <clears throat> two stories with very similar precipitating events, right? Named people selling property, bringing it to the apostles. And yet these two stories have very different vibes, right? As we would say today. So a little bit more compare and contrast. One story, we see people freely sharing everything. And then in the other story, we see people withholding. One story, we see that there's this great grace over the ecclesia, right? That wonderful phrase, so much grace that no one was in need. And in the other, there's this great fear that grips the ecclesia. So great grace, great fear. The first story, we have oneness, right? They're open, together, unified, and their willingness to sacrifice for the mission. And then the other story, we also have oneness, right? Sapphira and, and Ananias are on the same page, but it's around a false narrative. Both events, this submission at the apostles' feet. And then a contrast. The first story is the outcome of facing external opposition. Peter and John thrown in jail. They rally together. They pray. God moves. And then we see this picture of how generous they are, how much grace is on them. All, of the, all the result or a reaction to the external opposition. And then this story, we see the devastating destruction. Again, this has been a theme, right, that we've seen throughout Acts. The devastating destruction of internal opposition. Maybe more importantly, we should say it this way, internal misalignment with the mission and purpose of God. Now, should be a lot of questions <clears throat> that you have at this point, right? A lot of good questions that we could ask. Questions like, uh, why? <laughs> why did this happen? I, sure, withholding money from the apostles, not a good look, but dropping down dead, I, like what in the world is that all about? Is God in the business of striking people down who don't give enough to the church? And then maybe, you know, more importantly, in a lot of ways, what, what is it? that Ananias and Sapphira do that is so wrong? Do they even do anything that's wrong? Now, I want to suggest a couple of answers to, uh, to some of these questions, and then I want us to get into the implications of the story, because even though there's this kind of sensational, uh, dramatic aspect to it, I think there's actually a lot here for us to chew on and think about. So, first thing, our first answer to one of those questions is, is this. God is not in the business of striking people down. Now, the text itself doesn't actually say what happens here, it, meaning it doesn't really explain, like, did God cause this? What, did, did Peter cause it? Did some other thing happen? It just says that they dropped dead, which is, you know, again, bizarre in and of itself. But the cause of death is not really named directly. And then more, you know, generally and broadly speaking, <clears throat> we know from the bigger story of Scripture that God sent Jesus to die in our place and therefore isn't really in the business of punishing people in this way. This seems to be an isolated incident, right? Kind of a strange outlier and occurrence that is held in contrast to the larger activity of the church. The majority of the ecclesia is together, one, in heart and mind, selling property to meet needs. And then there's these uh, outliers, Ananias and Sapphira. So this is a story that Luke highlights because of the contrast. Not, not as a sort of lesson of like, don't, don't be a liar or you'll drop down dead, but more of like, 
here's what was going on. And then here's an example of, of when it didn't go that way and how crazy that was. Right? Juxtaposing the postures of generosity versus withholding. Uh, openness versus you know, covering up or, or, or hiding. Authenticity versus pretending. These are the, the tensions, the contrast that Luke wants us to see and wants us to wrestle with. Right? One of these things is not like the other. One of these things doesn't belong. The ecclesia, the church, is built on the resurrection power of Jesus. It's built on grace and freedom, not organizational power and manipulation and image management. Now, which leads to the, the, the second thing, the second truth here is what they do wrong is not really about the money. I mean, that's obviously the manifestation of it. It's an issue, but their withholding points to a deeper problem. The, the issues, I think there's two issues here, the issues of half-hearted participation and then a corrupted understanding of grace, right? I think what Luke wants us to see is when grace is at work in the church, this is what happens. Radical generosity. And when we have a corrupted understanding of God's grace for us, we feel the need to manage our image, cover up some things, pretend like we're, we're participating when we really aren't. The grace that God has lavished on us through Jesus spells the end of pretending. The end of pretending. You don't need to fake it anymore. You can just be who you are. And yet Ananias and Sapphira realize something that many people have realized over the last 2,000 years, and it's this. You can play games in church. Games that, that make ourselves look good, that, that make ourselves look better, that make ourselves look more spiritual, like, hey, we're, we're with it when we really aren't. It happens all the time. But in the OG Ecclesia, that kind of inauthenticity wouldn't fly. The thing was too fragile, too new, too fresh. There could be no games. There was too much at stake. You were either in or out. You were about it or not about it, manipulation and image management work in direct opposition. They are the opposite means of what God uses to build his church, which is again, grace and freedom, love and generosity, this generosity that flows as a response, right? As a worshipful response to the grace and freedom that we enjoy because of what Jesus has done on our behalf on that cross, his death and resurrection. Now, let's talk about some implications because I, I, I do think there is a big question here of what do we do with these stories? And in particular, what do we do with Ananias and Sapphira? Do we need to live in fear of being struck down? Hopefully, you understand the answer to that question is no. <laughs> right? We don't need to live in fear of being struck down. We can rejoice in the good news that God has poured His grace on us. But I think there are, again, some great, challenging, interesting, fascinating implications that come from this story. And I would, I would frame it this way. I think there's three things for us to sit with. There is a challenge. There's also a caveat. And then finally, there is a comfort, actually, 
in these stories. So first, the challenge. Okay, the challenge of these stories, and again, particularly of Ananias and Sapphira, is to ask the question, are there ways in which I withhold from the ecclesia? Are there ways in which I withhold from the church? Do I play the church game or do I authentically participate in God's family as a worshipful response to the great grace and love that he has lavished on me? The, our, again, I think I said this a couple of weeks ago, but our creativity in sin knows no ends, right? And, and so we can hide and pretend in all kinds of ways, even really good ways. And again, this, I think this is one of the key issues of Ananias and Sapphira. What they do looks really good. Look at us. We sold some property. We're, we're giving the money to the church. We're laying it down at the apostles' feet. We can't hide, though, behind our serving, behind our attendance. We, we can hide behind even our giving and our generosity. Or we can just straight up withhold those things. Which again is less about the actions, right? It's, it's not about like, well, do I serve or not serve? It's more about the spirit behind them. Do we love and serve and give and participate because of God's great grace in our lives? Or is it about duty or obligation or gamesmanship? Is it about image management? Is it about manipulation? We do well to sit with some of those questions, right? To examine our hearts and think about what our motivation for all of that is. Part of this is, is we're, we're just not conditioned to the kind of openness that the early church experienced. Can you imagine if we, if we went around a Sunday morning gathering and we had everybody share how much money they give to the church? <laughs> Can you imagine that? Man, the, the thought of that like makes me so uncomfortable that I, I, can't, I have a hard time even saying it out loud. But, but part of the radical nature of the early church was that level of openness. And I don't know that they did that necessarily, but people knew what was going on. They were very open about it, right? They're, they were so authentic in their generosity. They did not hide. Ananias and Sapphira are the outliers. The rest of the church, uh, selling stuff, meeting needs, God's grace so powerfully at work among them that no one had a need. Maybe less controversially, another way of getting at this is to say this, that there's this reality that the church needs you. And I don't say that like in a survival way or in a manipulative way, but the church is better when we are together, right? As we like to say here at Discovery, one of our deacons was uh, reflecting on a team that they are a part of and, and was just kind of saying, it was sort of an offhand comment almost, but it was just saying like, I feel like there's some people that are missing. And again, this was not a, a complaint or a lament or anything like that, but I thought, wow, that so beautifully captures the, the truth of this story that we're looking at today. Uh, and, and the truth of where a lot of churches, including ours, I think are... Um, here in our, our current cultural moment, the ecclesia didn't need Ananias and Sapphira's money, right? Nobody had need. They, they, they were taken care of. They needed Ananias and Sapphira, right? They needed them to be there and to be all in and to be with it. Like, hey, this is what we're doing. Are you in? And they were not. 
They were only kind of halfway in, one foot out the door. And in the same way, again, I think, I think a lot of churches today are missing people. Again, not in the sense of, of attendance on Sunday morning or, or you know, just counting the numbers or anything like that, but in the sense of, of uh, we're missing the joy and the fun of the radical adventure of following Jesus together. Of, of serving the church and the mission and our community together, we miss when we're not all in it. Are you with me? Now, the caveat here, so that was the challenge. The caveat here is that many of us have had bad experiences with the church and with people who claim to follow Jesus. And so we withhold, I, I think, for good reasons. Right? We withhold because we've been wounded. We, we withhold out of a fear of getting hurt. And I totally get this. My deepest wounds come from church. Man, I got stories. Uh, I do think there is wisdom in being careful, especially if you're in that place of kind of re-engaging with church. Or, or maybe you've never really been a part of a church. You've just seen Christians behave badly, and so you're not totally sure what's going on here. I think there's wisdom in, in being careful uh, as you enter into community as you engage with the church, as you open yourself up again. But, but I'm also reminded of that great C.S. Lewis quote, to love, to love at all, to love anything, he says, even a pet, to love is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. And so at some point, and you may not be ready for this right now, and that's fine, but at some point, to fully experience the great grace that God provides us through his people, we have to open ourselves up to the church and to each other. Which leads us to the comfort. So the challenge, the caveat, the comfort, Acts 4 in particular, verses 32 to 37, is a picture of God's dream. God's heart, his dream for his creation is what we see in Acts 4, 32 through 37. A community that is together. A community that is of one mind and heart. A community that is sharing and generosity and taking care of each other and meeting needs. God's grace so powerfully at work in all of us. The resurrection of Jesus transforming lives. No more pretending, no faking, no appearance-driven spirituality. Just this very practical, real, loving, grace-filled community that takes care of each other. Friendship with God and with one another. That's God's heart for us, for his creation, for people. This is what he intended from the very beginning of the story. Purpose and friendship. This is why he pursued us even when we rejected it. This is why he sent Jesus to live with us, to teach us about what life in his kingdom looks like, to die in our place on that cross, and then to overcome the power of sin and death through his resurrection. It's all because God is community. Three persons in one being, Father, Son, and Spirit. God is community, and when God's grace abounds, it creates community. Right relationships, healthy Friendship. Sin is always about destroying, undermining, and eroding community. 
destroying, undermining, and eroding friendship. Grace heals, restores, and creates beautiful friendships. And so here we now come to the communion table, this moment that we center around every time we gather. Digitally, in person, every Sunday, it's about the table where Jesus says, I no longer call you servants, I call you friends. And because we are friends with God, we can be true friends with one another. We celebrate and remember that in this moment called communion. Now, as we get ready for this, wherever you are today, uh, whatever elements you have in front of you, gather those together. And then as we close with this last song, I want you to just sit with two questions. Really one question with a kind of a follow-up to it. And that question is, what would church look like if we were all in? What would the church look like if we dropped appearances, if we stopped faking it, if we rejected pretending and image management and hiding and all these things? What if we just dropped all that and we were honest and we were real and we fully participated as a response, as a worshipful response to what God has done for us? What would it look like? What would our gatherings look like? What would our groups look like? What would our generosity look like? look like. I want you to think about that, pray about that, dream about that as we sing this final song together and as you take communion, the body and blood of Christ. Jesus dying in your place to forgive your sins so that you could be friends with God and friends with others. When you're ready, take communion.